You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everyone, John Worth, I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, the great Mats Bielander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, current Eurosport commentator, the eponym of Bielander on wheels that we'll talk about, a road show that he's been doing for uh, for a number of years, and overall just one of the great overarching presence in this sport. This is a fun conversation. I think you'll see why. Mats is so uh, so popular, why he's such an important member of the tennis community, always a good conversationalist, and this time was no exception. He's not in his home of Idaho, but he's on the other side of the ocean, but we'll talk to him now. Here's Mats Villander. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure speaking. Um, yeah, likewise. Thank you. Where, where are you? Where are we getting you? I am in Palma de Mallorca. Really? Spain. Yes. It's uh, it ain't Idaho. What what brings you there? No, it's uh, there was an ATP Champions Tournament last weekend uh, where I played a couple of doubles. I did not play singles, but I played a few doubles with uh, Mansur Barami and Michael Pernforce and Tim Henman jumped in, and um, so it was uh, very nice. And I'm here for another three days doing uh, tennis clinics, so tennis camps with Michael Pernforce and and twelve Scandinavians. Twelve Scandinavians in Mallorca sounds like the setup to a joke. Um, uh, yeah, no, no, it's very Swedish actually. Palma, Mallorca, is quite Swedish. A lot of Swedes here, and they, the Swedish hotel and Swedish-owned uh, tennis club where they played the tournament. And uh, so, yeah, really, really good spot. Did you have anything to do with the Nadal Academy, or is this totally separate? No, totally separate. Yeah, he's in uh, over in Manacor, which is sure. about forty-five minute drive from Palma, but. So it's totally separate. Um, yeah, we're just here for uh, Moya, Tommy Haas, uh, Ferrero, Henman, Malice, uh, and Kurecha played the singles, and then uh, they put a few doubles in between. So let's talk tennis. What uh, 
it's mid-October. When you look out at the sport right now at this period of time, what what are you seeing? Sort of big big picture. Uh, where is professional tennis right now? Um, Wide I open question. I think that um, both uh, men's and on the women's side, um, there is a little bit of a change going on at top. Obviously. Um, Obviously, Novak Djokovic has uh, stopped that debate, I suppose, winning the last two. But I still feel like there's, I mean, it's obvious that uh, Rafa is getting older um, for obvious reasons. But you can just tell that he's not necessarily slowing down, but we might not see him at his best all the time um, for physical reasons. And I think that opens up um, a little bit of a void and the chance for the younger guys to come in. Uh, Obviously, Federer, we... Uh, the U.S. Open, I, I will discount that. But um, the last three or four months, he's lost close matches. So, yeah, he's not. they're not on their way out. But I think that there's a professional tennis right now. There's a good chance for young guys to come through. Unfortunately, we haven't seen it in the last 10, 15 years. But uh, I think that they're, it's inevitable that they're coming. And I think that the younger generation is coming. Obviously, on the women's side, it's already happened. Um, and on the women's side, I'm not sure which of the older players are going to stop the young invasion uh serena is maybe able to but so i think that's what i see and obviously when that happens you start thinking about what's going to happen the day that federer and nadal and possibly djokovic are not in the game anymore or serena or maria shapova but um i think that it's you know it's a good thing it's going to happen and we have um i guess you could say survived changes like that before with john quitting and mackinon not winning much after that um, so I'm not worried. I'm excited and um, looking for new rivalries. Really, if you're uh, if you're going to back one or two horses on the men's side, we we've been. I mean, you said it, and it's we we say it, and we don't even think about it when we say it's, it's been ten or fifteen years since uh, we, we've had a breakthrough, which is just remarkable. But if you if you were going to pick uh, one or two horses to be the next player to win a major, not named Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray Vavrinka, who uh, who do you like? Um, you know, it's so hard to know what's going to happen to the likes of Kei Nishikori and Milos Raonic. And, um, I mean, you're going to have to throw Grigor Dimitrov in there when these guys, uh, you know, the, the great four, big four are done. Are they going to be able to step up and, and suddenly gain that confidence to win majors? Or are the young guys going to push him out of the way? There's a lot of young guys. So for me, I think the the... Maybe at the moment, I think I'm looking at Stefanos Tsitsipas. I don't know if he's going to win a major in the next three, four years, but I think he's a pretty safe bet on on heading to the top of the game. I think he's got a pretty big game. He's got a good head on his shoulders. He he moves well for a big guy. Great attitude. Seems to enjoy the fight, enjoys uh, a bit of variation in his game. Um, obviously, Denis Shapovalov, but I think Tsitsipas for me is is a safer bet than than most others, apart from maybe Karen Khachanov. I think he's a full-on workhorse, huge game, great attitude, moves unbelievably well, and, and he's got good technique in most shots, and I think he's learned to learn to uh, manage the forehand side. So I think that's where I'm, I'm looking. Um, I think what we found out, and again, we find out all the time, that if you have a couple of great players winning a lot of majors uh, in one generation, the generation that comes behind usually suffers when Sampras Agassi wins most of it, um, Borg McEnroe wins most, and then, and now, so, I mean, it's good to have stars in the game, but they do sort of 
delete a lot of potential uh, Grand Slam winners by being just a little bit better and breaking their confidence down to basically nothing against them. <laughs> but when you when you say, I mean, people have always said to me same same thing. Boy, tennis is really going to be in trouble when when Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena are gone. But wouldn't you take that bet? I mean, is, isn't that preferable to have these four reliable, unbelievable generational champions? Is, isn't that preferable um, to the alternative of, of every tournament's up for grabs and we don't have these, these solid stars? I mean, I guess it is in a way, yes, because it brings tennis to the masses. And I think people tune in to Roger Federer. And uh, obviously by now everyone knows he plays tennis. But I think people tune in that are not necessarily tennis fans because uh, he's obviously transcended the sport. But I, I, I don't know. I, I look at this next the next generation as I do the generation that came after Sampras. And, and then, of course, Agassi hung in there a little bit longer than we thought. But, you know, that was Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, Marat Safin. And, uh, I mean, they all won, won slams before Roger Federer uh, won slams. And, and it seemed to me that maybe Sampras and Agassi kind of had to be out of there before Federer gained the confidence to to believe he can win slams. I know he beat Pete Sampras and Wimbledon early on in his career, but uh, he really didn't win as early as uh, a lot of great champions did. But so I think that's what we're going to see, and I think a, a great star will um, will come through. And a guy that is refuses to lose of those uh, younger guys, I think, and like on the women's side, I think they, they will come through. So yeah, there might be a year or two or three when we're sort of uh, who's going to be the rival, who's going to be the next guy, and we don't know. And then suddenly somebody comes through. And do you have to win 15 majors uh, in our sport these days to be called a, a great champion? I don't think so. Right. I think. Sixty plus comes through and wins four or five or Shapovalov. I think that you know the era we've had now is so um, it's so <laughs> it's distorting, isn't it? I don't know. It's unbelievable. But I mean, you have to also look at what's happened. I believe with with slower courts, slower balls. The guys can play the same game on all the different surfaces and just look at Novak because that's basically what he does, and he's unbelievable at it. Um, I think we're seeing tournaments change a little bit. Australian Open is much faster. Uh, we have more one-handed backhands uh, coming up. We thought that was over. That's not over. Uh, they're not. They don't have to come from um, the bigger countries. I mean, suddenly we have a Greek player. We have somebody from Canada. I mean, it's. Um, so I don't think so. I think that uh, tennis is in a, in a very healthy place because of what Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are doing and have done, and I think they've just raised the bar. I look at it as Tiger Woods in golf where, uh, okay, we need that star, but the game is so good in golf right now, and I think that tennis will be, I mean, when, you, when you're when you crawling around the floor at home and you start hitting balls against the wall and you're looking at Roger Federer's one-handed backhand, you're going to go, well, hold on a second. Uh, I'm going to do that, but better. Right. And they're going to get better and stronger and Mentally, are they ever going to be at the same level as those three? I'm not 100% sure, but certainly physically, they're going to exceed uh, those guys somehow. Evolution's a beautiful thing. Um, I, yes, it one, is. one of the uh, I was just telling uh, I was just telling a friend this. One of the great treats of covering the sport is uh, when we travel. We get we get to hear you, and we get to hear Barbara Shedd, and we get to hear Eurosport, which is a completely different experience from uh, from American coverage and American TV. I'm wondering how you guys have covered Djokovic, which I think is sort of one of the great secrets in, in plain sight. It's sort of this, this great story that's hidden in front of us. Um, 
what happened to the guy and then this remarkable comeback. And I think sometimes conflicts of interest get in the way. Sometimes relationships get in the way. I feel like this is a story that hasn't been properly told. And I'm curious, given the freedom you guys have on your broadcast, uh, how you're handling the the return of Novak Djokovic and the mysterious uh, sabbatical he went on. I think it's more mysterious that we're not talking about Roger Federer having a dry spell, not winning for five years. Um, Nadal had a mysterious time in his career for a couple of years where he, where, uh, he, yes, he got injured or did he, or did he not? Or was he just not playing well or wasn't able to practice? So I think Novak's uh, road is more normal and natural than, uh, than we have, um, allowed ourselves to think that Federer and Nadal have been this superhuman, but, but uh, I think in, in the end, you got to look at wins. Roger Federer covers it up in a completely different way. When he's not winning, he's still graceful. Uh, Rafa Nadal covers it up by, by not showing any negative emotion, but just going full on, and it doesn't matter how good he's playing. He's just, it's just me and him or you and him, and, and he doesn't want to lose to you. With Novak, he's a little more, um, I think, more human in the way that he shows uh, disappointment and uh, satisfaction on a tennis court. Uh, and that's way more if you look back at what great champions have been like in the past, with maybe the exception of Jimmy Connors. But there have been ups and downs. And I think Federer Nadal is, is just the way they have handled themselves through tough times. We don't really talk about them having a, being in a slump. So Djokovic's slump was very short. Obviously, the elbow surgery um, had a big, uh, was a big reason for it. I think conflict of interest off the court when you have two kids and a and a while you got to have new values and um, and I think that you know he's I think the way we've covered him is he's come so far uh, to us uh, in Europe where he came out and obviously won the Australian Open. She's ten years ago, I guess it is. Um, right. And he was fragile emotionally. He was very fragile, and we co- I covered that, and I was not. Um, impressed with the way he behaved on the court but the way he has changed that and become a complete warrior i think that to me is a bigger change than roger federer's backhand i really do i think novak's mentality has just gone from not being very good to being unbelievably good especially in big matches it's really interesting i mean the knock on djokovic used to be just push him around a little get get him into the to the latter rounds like a boxer just just hang in there uh for seven or eight rounds, and eventually he's going to tap out. And it's been a total transformation, hasn't it? It has been a total transformation. I really think, though, uh, also that, that famous match at the, in the semis of the U.S. Open, or a couple of semis in a row, actually, against Roger Federer, obviously the one where he sort of went, okay, you know what, you served my forehand, I'm not, I'm not letting you hit another winner. <laughs> right. I'm going for it. I'm right. taking my chance. And, and he was completely committed to that shot, and he's won so many matches by committing to just saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to be full-on aggressive and I'm going to beat myself. If, the, if I lose, I'm going to beat myself, which hasn't happened very often. But then he's also showed the other side where, you know, he's fighting through a um, little bit of Wimbledon against Nadal. I would think the crowd was slightly on Nadal's side. Um, every time he's played Federer, the crowd is on Federer's side. That happens all the time, of course. And then uh, US Open, we're so dying to have Del Potro come back and win. And, and he's just figured out that, well, in this match against Del Potro, I am not going to try and out-hit the guy. I'm just going to be a, a, a human wall and not miss. So I think he's figured out so many different ways to win matches these days that in a big match, um, I say that there's a play, players that have played big matches and there's big match players. And I would have to say 
that Novak Djokovic is as big a match player as anyone has ever seen. You know what? One of the uh, the great pities of the U.S. Open for me was I, I heard the news that the Volander on Wheels van is in the shop. What's what's the status of uh, the what's, what's the status of the van? No. So what's happened this year is that I have um, I am involved in starting to run a tennis club in Haley, Idaho, uh, and it's taken a lot of my time to figure out how I'm going to be able to handle three indoor tennis courts uh, and uh, and a big gym attached to it. So that has taken up a lot of time. Enough time we haven't gotten on the road. We're, we're going on the road here in November, going down to New Orleans. Oh, um, we've done it for nine years, three months a year. Um, that's more than the seven-year itch, if you know what I mean. So I don't exactly know where we are. I can't imagine that we're not going to keep going because it's been one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. Um, are we going to keep going three months a year in a motorhome or alter it a little bit? I mean, I started slicing backhands after a while. Uh, instead of hitting topspin. So I think you evolved. You know, business <laughs> has evolved. We, I evolved. Cameron Lickle has evolved. And, and uh, we're getting older. And uh, we'll figure out a way to keep Relander on Wheels going the way we think it should be going. So um, the future, I think, is that we both love to teach tennis. And uh, we'll get out there. We'll get out there for sure. It's just a matter of how we do it. Is it Relander on Wheels or Relander on Water or... <laughs> We're not really sure, but uh, my time has been taken up by, by starting uh, to run this uh, Gravity Fitness and Tennis in Haley, Idaho. You should come out and check it out. It's, in it's, Haley, uh, Idaho? High altitude training camp. You need oh, that's it. excellent. <laughs> my, uh, my producer, Jamie's offered to be your designated driver for Volander on Wheels when you go to New Orleans. Um, um, you know, that's a, hard t- that's a hard spot. I mean, I'd rather give up my teaching, my teaching role in Volander on Wheels, but the driver part... That's me. That's me because the driver picks the music. And uh-huh. I'm hanging out with uh, Cameron Lickle, who's in his 30s, and we don't have the same music style. So uh, the driver picks the music. So we don't need a driver, but uh, we might need a trainer at some point. She could do that too. What's um, the, the club? Yeah. The, how, how close are you to the club in Idaho? I didn't, you, you don't live I'm in Haley. You, yeah, you don't live in Haley, right? Yeah, I do live in. Yeah, I live in, no, Sun Valley is just sort of the stage name. I live in Haley, okay. um, and uh, we're about 20, 25 minutes from, from civilization in general, and uh, the tennis club is obviously in civilization, so it's close enough. I've never been involved in a tennis club. I'm still going to travel sort of four, five, six months a year, depending on the year, but I, I now feel I would love to have, and I now do have a place um, to go when I get home, um, play tennis, teach tennis, uh, spend three, four hours on a court. I love hitting balls. I love teaching tennis with um, uh, anyone. So this is a new chapter in my life, and um, hopefully we can get some of our sort of deadhead fans that we've uh, gathered for the last nine years to come to Idaho and, and ski in the winter, play tennis um, in, in the afternoon, or come and fly fish. We call it the Augusta of fly fishing. That's where we are in Blaine County, and, and then play some tennis as well. So we're not really sure where we're going with it, but um, I'm really excited. But we do have some um, very interesting projects still for V-Lander on Wheels. That's uh, that's good living. I thought I was thought V-Lander uh, on yeah, Wheels. I thought it, it was. Um, I, you know, I used to see the van even at the U.S. Open when they would uh, they would park it on the other side of the bridge there by the Eunice fan. I, I always thought what a great message that sent that uh, that spoke as well as anything to 
the universal appeal of tennis. You could, uh, you, uh, yeah, you could take absolutely. that anywhere. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, please, don't, please don't tell anyone that we also spent nights in it and slept in it because uh, uh, some nights we finish late at the U.S. Open. I get up, get up early and do and do uh, Wheeland on Wheels clinics over at Forest Hills. So where do we sleep? We sleep in the van in the uh, parking lot H. But don't tell the U.S. Open because I don't think they allow us anymore. But you, we get woken up by people hitting, kicking soccer balls into the wall. Uh, into the side of yeah, the bus. exactly. So, yeah, right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I posted a that. photo once in the parking lot. Your van was actually one of the goals for. Uh, it, it looked like everyone was wearing. <laughs> I, I think it was El Salvadorian uh, t- soccer league, and your your van was one of the goals. Um, I love that. So you know that that reminds me of one of my one of my favorite stories about you that a, a friend saw you in M- Melbourne Airport, and every, everyone is flying home from the Australian Open. And you're you're sitting there on a chair, and he goes up to you and he says, "How come you're how come you're not down in the lounge? How come you're not in the Qantas lounge with the rest of the beautiful people?" And and you say, "I don't want to be with the beautiful people." Uh, that story always stuck with me, and I'm curious as I think about that, and as you tell me about sleeping uh, in a motorhome during the U.S. Open, where where do you think you got that sensibility? I mean, where where'd you uh, where where'd your values come from? I think the values come from, um, obviously, how you're raised with your parents and having two older brothers. And I grew up in a tiny, tiny town in Sweden with not much to do except sports. Um, I grew up playing tennis with a lot, with mostly people that were older than me. So um, they, you always got sort of uh, coached or um, talked to by them in how to behave and and uh, still didn't want to lose to them. but So I think that I was, uh, I don't know, I'm lucky in that way. But it's also, you know, um, I guess when you've been traveling as much as we all have, I think that there's a little bit of a wild person in there. And, and I'm looking for adventure at all times. Obviously, being on tennis court in the semis or finals of Grand Slams, that's a great adventure. But that ended. And um, so, yeah, I'm... Tennis is, it's, uh, you know, it's my passion. It doesn't turn me into a beautiful person at all. I love, uh, I love the sport, and I'm always trying to give back to it as much as I possibly can. Uh, I think there has never, ever been a tennis player that's even close to uh, uh, being as important as the game itself. Um, I'm hoping Roger Federer comes along and plays the French Open next year because I think it's a shame that that uh, he doesn't play there, understand the reasons for it. But again, no one's bigger than the game, and uh, we all owe the game for the rest of our lives. So that's what I'm interested in. And, uh, hey, the lounges, I'm not sure. They're crowded, too. So It's only an extra squirt of Pepsi. Yeah. What, but, what yeah, to... so I don't know. I'm not sure, John. I think you find that with a lot of, with a lot of tennis players. I think you see, you see us in the, in the middle of the heat of the battle, and, uh, you know, you hang around, and it's, Oh, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's a sort of an upper-class sport, or it's expensive, or whatever it is. We make a lot of money, and we travel, and it's glamorous, or whatever. But that's not what what what's interesting to me. Interesting is to try and come down and be as normal as I was before I turned pro, and and uh, and that's me. So, and I think a lot of pros are not comfortable necessarily with the, what you call the beautiful people. You mentioned Federer. And we were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago. I don't, I don't know if you were you at Labor Cup. Did you make it there at all? I didn't make it there. No, I watched it religiously on TV. I did last year as well. So um, I did not see it live. It, so I mean, it was remarkable on on a number of levels. One of them was, I think, first and foremost, just the the level of emotional buy in from the players. 
you kept hearing this isn't an exhibition, don't call it an exhibition, but it really didn't feel like one. But I, one thing that really struck me was it got me thinking where Roger Federer fits into tennis post-career. And in a lot of ways, it's in keeping what you're saying of the, the sport trumps everything. But here's someone who brings capital. He brings sponsors. He has a terrific gift for, for working a room, for, for dealing with people. There's authenticity. Where do you see, you have any sense of where Roger fits into this whole matrix when he's done playing? I think he fits in together with, uh, um, well, let's just go Roger Federer, with great humans of, uh, of our time. And great humans that will go down in history as uh, somebody who's done a lot of things that have changed uh, people's inspiration and changed the world. Um, and, um, and I think that he's so, and what's so cool is that he is just that normal guy. And, and then he steps on the court and he's this genius. But, uh, when he's in a room or, or, um, he's just a normal person, the way he was when he grew up and you see his parents in the bo- player box and they're applauding for both players and they're showing nerves and, and, uh, Robert is obviously nervous, but, and you can see it, but, I mean, at some point you think he would stop being nervous because Rogers won so much, but now not at all because he's. And I think that's it's just um, and and the most important part about Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and you know and, and a lot of others being that normal is that that's why they're the best players of all time to me because they have that respect as they have when they walk into room for every person there that respect that goes on to the court and they respect the guy across the net so much that they lose side of everything else except the guy across the net and because of that respect and and humility they are able to pretty much never ever lose to a guy they shouldn't lose to and that it starts with a a yes i don't want to lose that's for sure but it also starts with with checking out your opponent checking out his strengths checking out his weaknesses being prepared knowing what he does good what he's not good at when he chokes what what he you know when he wins blah 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 that's why they're the best players in the world you cannot just overlook your opponent and think you will have consistent success. And I think the young players today need to really, really look at that because they show up every single day and they, uh, and they don't play their best, but you could never, ever tell that they don't. And they figure out weaknesses of their opponent and they try to make his, their opponent worse. Rather than relying on their own strength, they rather exploit their other guy's weaknesses. That's respect to me. That's really interesting. And I also, I, I wonder too, as, as I hear you say that, what is the impact on the other side of the net when you're the <laughs> opponent and, and Federer and Nadal are, project this, this humility and they're not unapproachable and you see them in the locker room and they acknowledge you? I, I wonder what impact that has on the opponent. How, how do you really psych yourself up to beat Roger Federer when he's such a normal guy who is acknowledging you as you as you walk out there onto the court i think a lot of players are not able to do that they're not able to see um i mean obviously we look at jimmy connors as maybe the greatest competitor and fighter of all time in many ways together with rafael nadal um and jimmy had some tricks you know up his sleeve and and uh, you could sometimes find a little nerve in yourself that says listen I don't like what he's doing right now. I don't, is that aimed at me or is it not? Or, so, you know what, I don't like that. And I don't want to lose to uh, a guy who does that. So you could find another reason to not want to lose. Whereas with Federer and Adal, I am, I'm with you. I don't know how guys get up for it. Um, I, think, I think a lot of guys don't. And I think a lot of guys dread playing them. I think they have a good time playing them, but they're not 
necessarily really upset if they don't if they don't win. And um, I think, yes, they get a lot of matches for free that are won in the locker room. And I think most probably more so for Nadal than Federer. But, um, yeah, I think that's a problem. But that's a brilliant move by them. You know, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> right. with John McEnroe, yeah, sometimes you're like, I don't want to lose to this. What is he doing? Blah, blah, blah. It not, doesn't happen with Federer and Nadal. So I take my hat off to guys like Novak Djokovic who can actually mm. look past that and just take them for tennis players. And I'm not losing to a guy who hits one-handed backhands, basically. That's, uh, I've always remind what Charles Barkley used to say about Michael Jordan, which is, uh, you know, you, you want to be his friend while he kills you. Um, I, I, you're, 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 uh, you're in the wearables game, I hear. Yes. T- tell me, uh, tell yes, me what neuro, are. tell me what, I was, I was looking, I was funny, I was actually looking up uh, something about your career and I came across neuro tennis, a wearable that provides the wrist with uh, instantaneous auditory feedback. What does that mean? Um, that means that it's a wearable that you wear on the impact hand. So a right-hander wears it on his right, on his right wrist, and uh, it's a wearable that um, uh, detects the impact of the ball on your racket. And really, when you play tennis, there are two triggers. There's only two triggers, and it's when I hit and it's when my opponent hits. And certain things need to happen before I hit, after I hit. During the hit, you do your best to get the ball somewhere close uh, to the lines. But before you hit, you got to prepare. After you hit, you got to recover. Before your opponent hits, you got to prepare. And after he hits, you got to recover or prepare. Uh, and uh, we've come up with this because we have, uh, with Cameron Lickle, uh, we land on wheels. We're out playing with um, two brothers from uh, Washington, D.C., who are uh, geniuses in our world, and they're software engineers. And one of them said one time, I was playing with him and he said i need v-land ear and i said what on earth is v-land ear is a bad pronunciation of my name or <laughs> no no no. i need you in my head i need you in my ear like yeah. i need you to tell me because i keep telling him split step go to the middle keep moving he said i need you all the time and they came up with um with this wearable and it tells you what you need to be doing how you need to set yourself up to to have the possible best result. I think if you go and listen to a good coach teaching tennis, they're not, they're not telling you necessarily what you did wrong. It's more positive to try and tell them what they need to do right and try your best to do that. And then the result of your shot is really the feedback. But we forget. I put it on and I'm like, oh my God, it's telling me to move my feet. It's telling me to turn my shoulders. It's telling me to watch the ball. And I realize I'm actually not watching the ball. And if I forget, then amateurs are going to they're going to be helped so much by this these commands that repeat. And and the beauty of the product is if you're working on your forehand, it has five, six, seven commands that come on every time you hit or your opponents hit or you can change it and have every third time you hit. uh, You don't have it on when your opponent, but you can also program your own command. So for you, John, it might be hey, John, move your feet after you hit the ball or John get back to the middle or watch the ball. <laughs> you and know me well. It's not like you Yes, I guess. But you don't you don't necessarily and you want to try and think of five or six things at the same time without thinking about them. We have it who started playing tennis at four or five years old, but somebody who's an amateur and has started late in life, moving your feet when the other guy is hitting, making a split step when the other person is hitting, watching the ball until it hits your strings like Roger Federer does, that's, it's not that easy to remember. So you have this command uh, and this little speaker on your, on your wrist 
uh, where you hear it. No one else hears it uh, but you. Um, it's an unbelievable workout because when it tells you to move your feet, you're thinking, does it? No, I'm not moving my feet properly. So we have these uh, other apparatus where you can measure the spin of your ball. And I don't know. Do I need to know if I hit it at 1,000 RPMs or two or three or 4,000 or how do I do that? I'd rather have a positive command of what I should try and do. And hopefully I do it, and then the result is that the ball goes in. So neuro tennis, I think, um, yes, I love the idea, and I love the fact that a coach can go in and, and, and tell somebody who owns a neuro tennis wearable that, listen, I'm going to put in a few commands for you because you're not moving your feet or you're not turning your shoulders, or, and you need to do that more than other people. So my voice will be on there. Uh, with that command, and that's what Neurotennis is. Uh, go on the website, please, Neurotennis.com, uh, Neurotennis.com forward slash shop, and you can sign up and be one of the first to have an ability or a chance to buy them when they start coming out here in a couple of months. That's very cool. That that makes 10,000 steps seem very obsolete, I have to tell you. Uh, that this uh, seems next well, level. Well, there you go. I mean, exactly. Um. All right, this was great. We'll uh, maybe we'll do this again in Australia if that's cool. But uh, this is terrific. Anytime, John. Always Anytime. a pleasure. It's uh, it's it's six, it's six p.m. in Mallorca. So go uh, go eat lunch. And uh, this was great. Let's uh, <laughs> no, it's always a pleasure. Seriously, and uh, we we will link. Uh, that's that's actually really we're we're, we're going to link to the product. But uh, always a pleasure. We want to see Veladra on wheels back on the road. All right. Thank you very much, John. Have a have a great day back in the States. And uh, yes, I'll go and have lunch here in Spain. <laughs> you as well. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks to Matt for joining us. Thanks as always to Jamie Lasanti. Jamie Lasanti, as I bring you in, I will just say that is my kind of guy. Uh, love that guy. And uh, I think you, you got a sense of uh, this is a seven-time Grand Slam champion. This is a Hall of Famer. This is a truly elite tennis player. You would never know it uh, talking to him. There is, there's a real modesty, but there's also a real sense of engagement. Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that. And uh, I don't know if you, what struck you, I don't know if you've ever uh, met Matt or spoken to him, but uh, again, you, you will not find a more modest and humble figure in the tennis community. This is a guy who he comes in and he's, he's wearing a backpack and we were talking about the lounge, but there is, there is no special access for him and he does not care. Um he cares about the sport, though. So, uh, no, I, I enjoyed that conversation. I don't know if anything struck you, but uh, jump in. How'd you like that? It's it's great. He's he's really interesting, and I, I appreciate his uh, opinions, especially on Djokovic. I think he makes a good point there about how, you know, everyone was talking about Djokovic and his downfall and how he was going through this time, and will he ever be back? And now, of course, he has proven us all wrong, but he made the point that Federer and Nadal and others have also gone through periods of of this in their careers and people made too much of a deal of it or, you know, kind of everyone goes through that. That, inter- so. that is not what I expected him to uh, say. I, I think we could push back a little and say, yes, Federer had a, a five-year drought when he wasn't winning majors, but he was still getting to finals. Um, the, the Djokovic swoon for a guy who reliably was getting to Grand Slam semis. I mean, it was something like 23 out of 25 Grand Slam semis. And then suddenly for about 18 months was struggling to get to uh the second week of majors, 
I, I could push back a little there. But uh, no, I thought that was really an interesting, uh, I think that was an interesting point. And again, uh, Mats is a, a straight shooter. And he, he's also, I mean, we don't watch Eurosport in the United States, but he's also really a, a prominent A-list tennis commentator and uh, an analyst. He's on the road. Um, he does a, a game set Mats uh, segment on, on Eurosport. He's at all the majors. So he's on the road uh, a fair amount too. But um I also thought it was interesting what he said about how the the humility of Federer Nadal actually has a competitive advantage. And sometimes with with stars, and this is hardly uh, just an issue to tennis. I mean, it's hardly unique to tennis, but sometimes stars get to a certain level and people say, who was that guy? I was just heard a great story about how Michael Jordan uh, was behaving the the summer when he was drafted in the summer of 1984. And that person is unrecognizable from the, the Michael Jordan who became the great NBA player. But I think it's interesting that he saw it as a competitive advantage, that it actually uh, is conducive to their winning, that, that Federer and Nadal have kept this level of uh, humility. You're kind of shaking your head? Yeah. You're a little I mean, skeptical? A little bit, yeah. I get it. Um, but I think any player that's at the professional level would kind of laugh at that and be like, yeah, at the surface, you know, maybe I maybe I think about that when I wake up in the morning, but by the time I brush my teeth, it's pretty much like, uh, this is what I do for a living. I'm a competitor, you know, I'm going to play my hardest against this person. I think um I think us mortals probably have a uh have that in the back of our minds when we think, what would I do if I stood across the net and, you know, Federer right. is standing there. But when you're you know, we've seen them fall yeah, many but times I, I think in it's early more rounds like to you people need... who yeah, no, you're right, and I think you know, look at John Millman just got done beating Roger Federer, so it's it's not as. But I think his his point is well taken that an individual sport it helps to have extra motivation or some sort of personal animus to help you beat the other guy. And I I remember, I remember early in Federer's career when you just sensed that the opponent was almost satisfied losing to Federer. I mean, it, it almost didn't have suspense in the outcome because the opponent was resigned to losing to this nice guy who played beautiful tennis who I can't really get mad at because he's such a cool guy. I think after the fact, though, that's when that comes into play. I don't think you, like I said, wake up in the morning, go out there, and that's what you're thinking. Like, uh, you know, if that's I fair, lose, fair point, I think point. after the fact, when you look at the scoreboard and you take a deep breath, you're not going to go and, you know, be a sore loser. You're going to sort of calm down and, and go ahead and shake his hand and, and kind of say, all right, well, I lost to Roger Federer, you know. Tomorrow's another day, you know, and you kind of move on. But I don't think it's not a mentality thing throughout the entire match. At least I hope not. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting about Vlander, especially, he won one fewer major than Andre Agassi. He won the, the same number as McEnroe, one fewer than Jimmy Connors, only four fewer than Bjorn Borg. I'm not sure that people see him necessarily as one of the great titans of tennis, which he is. I mean, he had one of the great all-time great seasons. Um he probably cut his career uh, a bit short. Um, he, he's, again, one of these 30 is a new 20. This is a guy who was, was by the time he hit 30 years old, he was done winning. But he's had a really, really, I mean, this is an absolute Hall of Fame, Mount Rushmore type of career. Seven majors on a variety of surfaces. Um, you know, won, won all three majors, did not win Wimbledon, but otherwise won three of the four majors. This is a formidable tennis career. And for whatever reason, whether it's his own humility, whether it's the fact that he didn't draw attention to himself, he's you know he's probably my size. I mean, he's not a towering physical presence. Played at the same time as McEnroe, who took a lot of the oxygen out of the room. I, I'm not sure 
history has quite given him his due as uh, as a player. If I told you a year ago, John McEnroe and Matt Vilander each won seven majors. Uh, right. All right. I think that's fair. Do you think that that uh, we talk about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic? Do you think I, I have one player in mind? But do you think there's a player that um, is suffering from the same sort of effect, maybe as as he well, is? I'm curious who. I mean, I I always had a theory that players marketed themselves in tennis after their retirement. So Yvonne Lendl goes away for years and years. We later learn that that may have been tied to uh, to a lawsuit. Uh, but you know, P- Pete Sampras is not interested in coaching, being a commentator, being a, much of a presence. And I wonder if that doesn't undercut his achievements. Conversely, John McEnroe is absolutely everywhere. Right. And maybe his the same way Charles Barkley in the NBA. I mean, I think mm-hmm. players define their careers some ways after they retire. And John McEnroe's absolute ubiquitous presence probably gives him more stature the than recency his... recency effect, basically. Yeah, there's a recency I mean. effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Steffi Graf, same way. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. Was, was that yours? No, uh, well, I was Who was thinking, yours? I'm curious. No, no, I, that, that's who I was going to say in, in that example. But I'm thinking um, with with Matt's, you mentioned Borg. Is there something that happens like down the road if Vavrinko wins more majors and suddenly he's close to double digits? Does he... Have a similar oh, 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 the effect. countryman. Okay. Yeah, something like yeah. that where he is disappears after he retires and doesn't uh, maybe not he's not as high profile as someone like Federer. That's really interesting. I mean, it's it's Borg and also I would add Edberg, mm-hmm. who played probably a more aesthetically pleasing game and mm-hmm. won at Wimbledon when Wimbledon was far and away the most prestigious of the four majors. I, I think that probably goes into it. That's an interesting point. Yeah, Stan Wawrinka. Basically, in is, some there way anyone, obscured. Yeah, is there any players that will end up being obscured because of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic? Countrymen or not, but people who, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of their careers, you look back, as you said, at, at major totals and how many majors they've won across across all of them. And you say, wow, well, they've won the same, but they don't seem like the same caliber of player looking back. Is that, you know, are we going to get to that point? It's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that happens a lot. I mean, I think uh, you just sort of look at the math going forward. And Matt's talked about this a little bit, that we're so spoiled, it's a joke. I mean, if a player today wins, you know, if you said to Zverev, you're going to win three, four majors for your career, it's sign me up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the notion we're going to have this double digit major winners. Right now we have uh, three of them and four if you count Serena and Venus has seven. I mean, it's it's just comedy because back it's in true. the old days, you know, se- seven majors was made you John McEnroe. Now seven majors and you're... It's not necessarily you know, the standard. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, correction period for tennis. But uh, anyway, um, good conversation with Matt. Always, uh, always a favorite. Man of the people. Love that guy. Yeah. Um, all right. We will have another podcast next week. Uh, thanks to Matt. Thanks, as always, to Jamie. Pleasure. Thank you, John. Um, remind us, as you do each week, if people were so interested in uh, subscribing or leaving reviews, where might they go about doing that? They go on Apple Podcasts, and they can click subscribe so that they get their podcasts delivered to their phone so they can download and listen right away, and they should leave a review. There you go. You heard it from Jamie. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Keep the suggestions coming. We'll do it again in a week. 